Hi everyone and welcome to the Parma podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. Um, and today, this week, I'm delighted to welcome back our returning guest who was on the show, I want to say two years ago. It may have been three years ago. I can't quite remember. Um, time seems to be distorted right now because of everything that's happening. But uh, Caroline McGraw, welcome back to the show. Thank you, James. It is an honor to be back. Thank you for having me again on the show. Yeah, it's great to have you back. It feels like ages. Um, yeah, and it's exciting because you have a new book out, which is really, really exciting, um, called um, You Don't Owe Anyone. Yes, You Don't Owe Anyone. Free Yourself from the Weight of Expectations. Very excited about it. Yeah, it's really exciting. And last time you were on the show, we talked a bit about perfectionism. And um, and this book kind of delves a bit deeper into all of those themes and unpacks them a bit more. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and yeah, tell us what the book's about. Thank you. Yes. So the idea for the book came about in 2015 when I got a series of Facebook messages from an old acquaintance, someone I hadn't seen or spoken to in years. And these messages were just out of the blue, no context, no, hi, how are you doing? It's been a while. It was just, I miss you. I miss you. I really miss you. And if it helps for context, this was an acquaintance who the last time I had seen this person, they were drunk, they were hitting on me, they were in a relationship. It was kind of an awkward dynamic. And so just to get these, I miss you, I miss you, I really miss you. I'm thinking, what is going on here? And I felt really conflicted as to how do I respond to these messages? Because one part of me thought, "Mm, I don't want to go anywhere near this. This seems like just not a good scene for me. But then another part of me thought, well, what if this is a cry for help? What if this person is in trouble? Am I not being kind? Am I not being compassionate enough toward them? So I was really conflicted. You know, what do I do? What do I owe this person? Do I owe them a response? I'm really tangled up about this. So I went to talk to my husband and I outlined the situation very briefly. And instead of saying the obvious, which might have been, of course, you don't need to respond if you don't feel comfortable, you know, something like that. What he actually said to me was, you don't owe anyone an interaction. And I said, whoa, 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 hold up, hold the phone. Say that again. You don't owe anyone an interaction. And it was this powerful moment for me where I realized, oh my goodness, for the past 25 to 30 years of my life, I have been walking around believing that if someone reaches out to me, I owe them an interaction. And just hearing that, hearing that old belief contradicted was this major aha moment for me. And I started thinking about, well, what else do I believe that I owe the world? What else have I been walking around believing that I should be, or I need to show up a certain way because people expect this from me. So that was the real genesis of the book. And each chapter takes a look at something that you don't owe anyone. So You don't owe anyone the good child. You don't owe anyone a brave face. You don't owe anyone an explanation. So we really dive into, you know, what do we believe that we owe the world? And what if you don't owe that to anyone? I know so many of those roles resonated with me as well. I mean, the good child. I mean, wow. 
mm-hmm. you know, my whole life. But I'm the eldest. I'm the eldest child, so I always felt like I had to be the good child. I had to be the one that takes care of everybody else. You know, people who listen to my story on this show will know this. So I, yeah, it was like my job to look after everybody else. I have to be, have to behave. I have to be, I have to do the right thing all the time. I have to, yeah. I was, I played that role my for so long. Um, and one of the things that in my transformation journey that I had to unlearn was, you know, was that and forgiving myself for not forgiving myself, you know, because I blamed myself for bad things that happened to me, for trauma things that happened to me because I was playing that role. Um, you know, it's um, like I blame myself for my mother's death because mm-hmm. I thought it was my job to look after her or save her or something. And it wasn't, and I couldn't have done, there's nothing I could have done. So yeah, that, that one definitely, I mean, all of them resonated me, but that one really, really did because that was so much of my story. Yes. Yeah, I could feel that as you were sharing just the the weight of that and how exhausting it is and how much of a burden that is to walk around thinking, it's my job. I have to come through. I have to be the one who makes sure that everything is okay. And then if something goes very wrong, then blaming yourself for that. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that I noticed throughout the whole book is that it, it's kind of like reframing the lens that we see the world. Yes. The whole book, even the title of the book, it's just, yeah. Um, yeah. How, how is that? What does that look like for you? In, I mean, like the whole embracing this whole concept in your life. How is that? How has that reframed your life? I guess. Yes. I love that question because that's always what I want out of a book. I want to hear how did your life actually change when you integrated this? So, On one hand, the easy answer is the first half of the book is me not integrating this at all. (laughs) The first half is me living like I do owe everyone everything. The second half is, oh, this is how I'm beginning to integrate it in my life now. But to give you a really practical example, it's still something I have to keep checking on because I walked around with those lenses and that perception for so long that if I'm not mindful about it, I go back to that old default. So just last night I was trying to decide, do I make this charitable contribution to an organization? You know, I very much feel it's important to support their mission. And I was wrestling with it though. I was like, is this something that I really want to do? Or am I just doing it because I believe that I'm supposed to, or that I owe someone, is this a true desire for me to give? And so I have to kind of go back to that of, all right, what would I do if I didn't owe anyone? If no one was expecting this from me, if no one was pressuring me, what would I want? So I think it's a constant returning to yourself and returning to those challenging questions really of, am I doing this because I'm afraid or am I doing this because this is truly aligned for me? Mm, That's powerful. How it, seeps into the little things that we do um yeah it's almost a scary thing to do is to it's to start looking at like how much of this is obligation and how much this is is coming from me because it yes it almost shows us how much we've really changed <laughs> exactly exactly because past me would have made that contribution without thinking about it 
I would have just said, well, of course, I love the work they do. I love what they stand for. Of course, I'm going to contribute. And I'd been, I've been a faithful supporter for years. And that may very well continue. But I'm taking pause and I'm giving myself a minute to ask, is this really true for me? Or is this just something I'm doing because I've always done it? Yeah, exactly. It's really important to do that, actually. With our lives. Like, why are we making these decisions? Because when it comes to big decisions, if we're doing it for the wrong reasons, that's, that could end up in catastrophe. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And there have been so many times where I've made a decision out of wanting to please someone and make them happy. And I look back and just the monumental cost, the time, the energy, the money. I mean, if you were to look back over your life and add up, what is the cost of me deciding that I owe people a certain version of me? I mean, it would be staggering. It would be so, it costs so much. Mm, Yeah. 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 And so many of us do it, I think as well probably more than more more than we realize actually as well because unless you're really conscious of it and paying attention to it you won't you won't see it yeah yeah exactly that that feels like my goal with this book was if i'm able to help people have those moments of attention where they're not just going on autopilot then this book will have been successful if it helps you to be more aware and be more present to why am I doing this? Why am I showing up this way? Is this actually, does this matter to me at all? Or am I just doing this because I think I'm supposed to? Mm, yeah. I've asked that question a lot with a lot of my life. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Powerful question. <laughs> um, one thing that I, one, one thing I noticed in the book as well, that, that, Something that I talk about a lot on on this show is, uh, and just in my work generally, is, is naming naming our pain, naming our trauma, naming what's going on inside of us. Uh, actually, and moving into it, leaning into it, um, and that's something that you that's in, that, that's kind of throughout the book and part of the process you're, you're talking about. I mean, how how have you? What did that look like for you? In terms, of what what things did you have to lean into that were uncomfortable um but you knew that you needed to do the work and and what was the outcome yeah yeah that's a great way of saying it and in the second chapter it's called you don't owe anyone your spiritual allegiance and it starts off with a story about how i recognized oh wait a second i have been i have been operating under this old paradigm and i didn't even know it So I went to the store and I was trying to buy some Christmas ornaments again with my husband. And I had this sort of anxiety attack in the store of, we shouldn't be spending the money on these Christmas ornaments. We shouldn't be spending this. It was $11 US. It was not, it was not a significant investment, but I had this moment of panic almost of this is wrong. This is bad. I shouldn't be doing this. And that was a moment of awareness. Like you're talking about of, oh, I'm still operating under what I learned in my church growing up, which was it, was, it was bad, it was not appropriate, it was not okay to have a Christmas tree, decorate the Christmas tree. There, was, there were all of these structures around Christmas is bad. And 
it was one of those moments where I went, oh, I have some work to do here. Okay. So that's a good, that's a good clue for, for any listener of, okay, if you are not sure where to start with, with your trauma or with your pain, it's where are you limiting yourself and reacting in a way that doesn't make sense to your logical mind? So my logical mind was like, just buy the Christmas ornaments. It's not a big deal. But there was something deeper. There was an old pain. There was an old trauma that was actually running the show of like, no, no, you can't do that or you're going to be punished. It's going to be wrong. It's going to be bad. You can't go there. So anytime that you are confused by your own response to something, it's it's a good invitation to look a little bit deeper. And that's what started my journey into naming. Oh, wait, okay. What kind of religious system did I grow up in and what were some of the results from that? And I describe it a bit more in the book, but it was about my discovering, oh my gosh, this was actually a cult. And I didn't know because it was just the church I'd been to since I was six. I mean, when you're six years old, it's just, Mm. this is normal. This is just what we do. And so as an adult, having to re-examine that and really look at, oh my gosh, this is not what I thought it was. So yeah oh gosh that's 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 powerful because there's so many people who've come through the church the evangelical church in america in particular mm-hmm. and have come out and realized that that oh my gosh this is like indoctrination it's literally indoctrination you get trained into believing something and that anything outside of that is shame um guilt you know like you, there's something wrong with you and you're going to hell. Mm-hmm. Um, you must blindly believe what you get told without questioning. Uh, and that's like, if you use that language about anything else, you would say, "Oh, it's a cult," you know, <laughs> right, right, right. But because it's because it's Christian, because it's evangelical Christianity, like, and it's got the language of Christianity. You, it's like almost like, well, you can't use that language about that. Well, yeah, but what's going on you know now, this isn't like the whole of christianity i want to say that actually right um, because right. i know a lot of people who are christians who that isn't this isn't the case for them this isn't their experience um um and so um but for a certain section of christianity this is the experience and yeah and and the certain religious certainty is a way is the classic way to hide from your your trauma and your pain and what you're carrying mm. uh, you know, uh, and I've talked about that on the show a lot. That, um, and it's only when we come out of it that we realize what we were doing. Yes. Personally, I think that was a big part of why my family ended up in that cult in the first place, because my younger brother, Willie, who I write about in the book, he was diagnosed with autism when he was three and I was five. This was, you know, 1990, where autism awareness was nothing like it is today. It was hugely traumatic and isolating to have that kind of diagnosis handed to you for Mm -hmm. your kid. Mm -hmm. So I can fully appreciate why for, for my family, for my mom in particular, this church was a kind of comfort. It was religious certainty after a big trauma in her life. And I certainly couldn't judge that. I mean, I can only imagine how hard that must have been to, to have that, that diagnosis 
And then to have somebody say, this is the way, these are the rules, this is the path, you just do this and you're going to be safe and you won't go to hell. That's tremendously appealing to someone who is very vulnerable in that, in that post-trauma place. Yeah, exactly. It is. It is. Uh, and you can find certainty in progressive circles as well as conservative ones. I mean, I, my story is that like, I, I kind of almost passively, aggressively, subtly, without almost realizing it, slipped into a form of progressive certainty. Uh, mm. I didn't even realize it because in that space there was like, oh, we can doubt, we can, we can ask questions, we can... All that but it was almost like it was all limited like like that was fashionable like you can say you doubt your faith but still it, at the end of the day it's still all certainty yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> i love that it, yes um yeah um so yeah I mean, this is that, that's really one thing that i noticed in the book which is really which i love i mean i love that if any anywhere i see that i love it because i think it's really really important something that we all have to think about it's a big moment for my character, air quotes, in the book when she has this, this clarifying certainty of, you know what, my church experience in many ways was negative and harmful, but it wasn't all bad. There were some incredibly good things about it. There were some friendships that I still have to this day. And people trying to say, you know, it was all good or it was all bad. It's like, mm. no, no everything usually is a blend of the two and to claim otherwise would be to get back into that certainty mindset. And so for me, just to be able to say, you know what, I need to be able to write about all of it. And in the, in the book, I, I definitely try to express some of the good things that came out of that really difficult experience, because that was what was most helpful for me was realizing, Oh, it's not black and white. It's not either or if cults were all bad and all all destructive, no one would no one would stay. There, there are some powerful positive forces at work that keep people in there. Um, so I just want to share that for anyone who's you know stuck in that place of, well, can I say it was harmful without saying it was all bad? Yes, I believe you can. I believe you can say this aspect was harmful, and it brought me some good things in my life too. Like being able to step away from that all or nothing thinking. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, when we, when we get out of that way of thinking, it, it's really liberating. And again, it's that, it's that coming out of it is like, well, I don't owe them anything. Right? <laughs> it brings us back to that title of the book you, know, you don't owe them anything like i have to make a choice which is for my growth and my my freedom and i don't have to apologize for that you know that's that's a big moment in in that journey yes yes exactly the the first few times that i wrote about my childhood church online or in blog posts, I was so scared because I had this feeling of obligation, of guilt, of like, I owe them only to say good things or only to say positive things. And then I went through the process you're describing and realized, no, no, wait a second. I, what if I don't owe them anything? What if I just told my story? Mm, yeah, it really is just that simple. And 
it is really liberating when you do that. Um, one of the things, and you talked about this before, and you talk about this in a lot of your work, is perfectionism. Um, and there's a great quote that you use in the book uh, from Anne Lamott. Um, mm-hmm. Perfectionism is based on the excessive belief that if you run carefully enough, hitting every stepping stone just right, you won't have to die. I love that um, too. I know. I just love that quote. Um, I mean, what what are the biggest dangers of perfectionism? Mm. You touched on one earlier, which was that feeling that it's all on my shoulders. If I can control everything, then I'm to blame. I'm also to blame for everything. Mm. That's a really big danger because if you have this vision of yourself as I'm the omnipotent one and if I just get everything right, I won't have to die. Nobody around me will have to die. It's this tremendous crushing guilt, shame, responsibility mess, essentially, um, which is not great for your mental health and well-being, obviously. So for me, at least, one of the antidotes to perfectionism has just been okay, you get to be human, you get to be limited, you get to be a person who does not have control over all of these external things that you thought you did. But where you can work on and what you can turn your attention to is, can I love that part of myself that is trying so hard to have control? Can I love the part of myself that is so scared? That's where I've been working to turn my attention to of, okay, you're freaked out and you want to be in control. I get that. Can I, can I take care of you? Can I love you through that? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and just being gentle with ourselves. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, it sounds so simple, but that is a huge core central message of this book is like, you don't owe anyone. So please, 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 be nicer to yourself, be gentle with yourself, be kind to yourself because perfectionism is a very harsh um, ideology to have to live under. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, especially in today's world, because we live in, you know, consumer kind of consumer capitalist society where you have to, where you're measured on what you do on how you perform on what numbers you get on being perfect mm-hmm. um, and so perfectionism is, is an easy temptation and uh you know we we can't fall into it because it will trap us um yeah i mean what are the mindsets and practices that you use to avoid or get yourself out of perfectionism <laughs> you yes. to others Yes. Avoid it if you can. Get yourself out of if you can't. Totally. Well, at the end of each chapter of the book, there is something called a no-o invitation. And basically what that is, it's one coaching practice or one exercise that's tied to the theme of each chapter. So I didn't want to overwhelm people. I wanted to keep it really simple. There are 12 chapters. There are 12 invitations. So one of them that comes up for me that I find really useful is to say out loud what I'm choosing to believe and what I 
believe more strongly than my perfectionism. So one example that I use in the book is to actually speak words of forgiveness to myself because it's so interesting. It's like, we never doubt our power to judge ourselves, but when you tell people you can forgive yourself, everyone gets very uncomfortable. It's like, yeah, it's, it's just so funny. It's like, but you don't question your ability to be a judge of yourself. So the flip side of that coin is if you're the one dealing out the judgment, you also are the one who has the authority to deal out the forgiveness. So one example that I use in the book is I left a pot of rice boiling on the stove and I forgot about it. And I was so annoyed with myself because I've, I've done this many times in life. I am a notoriously forgetful cook. I'm, I put something on the stove and I'll go read and I'll forget that I started making something. And I saw that, oh no, the rice is, the rice is going to be burned. And I heard myself say out loud, I forgive myself for burning the rice. And it was at that moment that I realized, oh my gosh, this work that I've been doing and these practices I've been undertaking actually have changed something in me because the words popped out without me thinking about them. It was like an automatic reaction as opposed Mm -hmm. to like, oh, I have to really think about this. So that's part of what I do working with clients is helping them through a process of self-forgiveness and letting that be one of their tools in their toolbox okay, you've judged yourself. I forgive myself for judging myself as whatever the judgment is. And the truth is, say what you believe the truth to be. Because the more you hear it, the more you hear your own voice say it. I mean, it took you a long time to get into the perfectionism paradigm. It's going to take some practice to get out of it, but that the words you say have a lot of power. So that's one place I like to start. And there's a ton more exercises in the book and it goes way deeper than that. But if you just want something really simple and specific, next time you're blaming yourself for something, I forgive myself actually saying it out loud. Mm, That's powerful. Forgiving yourself can be one of the hardest things anyone can do. I find it much easier to forgive others than I do to forgive myself. That is a hallmark of the people who are my people and who are generally fans of this book is like, oh, other people, yeah, sure, I can handle that, but me, mm-mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Exactly, yeah. One of my favorite practices in the book, which was like, almost caught me out a little bit when I read it, and, and it just stuck with me, uh, the practice of doing nothing. Yeah, love that one. And I was like, whoa and it's basically like sitting sitting down for 15 minutes and still and not doing anything and i mean i i struggle to stay still anyway because i'm i have adhd and, and so it's difficult for me to stay still it takes a lot of energy to stay still sure. right and not get distracted but but yeah just that like oh i don't have to do anything for just 15 minutes uh yeah i'm i'm so, so glad you brought that up Yeah, it's so counterintuitive. Yes, I literally did that just before this interview because I could feel myself getting into that, you know, nervous, oh my gosh, I'm doing an interview kind of energy. And I thought, I just, I need to get grounded. I need to just do nothing for 15 minutes. And some days it is hard. Some days it's like, oh, this is really challenging. But it's the first invitation that I offer in the book for a reason because Sometimes the simplest things are the most transformative. And I like to call it doing nothing uh, 
shout out to Martha Beck, who taught me that term instead of meditation, because for me, at least if I hear meditation, I think I'm supposed to be doing it a certain way. I'm supposed to be like breathing in a certain way or thinking of a mantra or I make it really complicated and I start to kind of overachieve on meditation, whereas doing nothing, my clients are like, wait, are there any more instructions? I'm saying, no, as long as you're not like on Facebook or Twitter, you're doing fine. Just do nothing. I promise. Just sit there. Just do nothing. Yeah. It's so simple. Simple again, isn't it? It's yeah. Yeah. There's not nothing else to say, is there? It's like, it's, you just sit and do nothing for 15 minutes. That's it. Yeah. yeah. And it will bring up all your stuff, but that's a good thing. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's what, that's what people, people don't often tell you when you're, when they're telling you about meditation or doing nothing is that, yeah, it will bring up your stuff because stuff will, you know, because your head is empty. So things that are in there that you've been pressing down will rise to the surface, but that's a good thing because it means you can start doing the work of healing. Exactly. Not always comfortable, but overall it is a good thing. I agree with you. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that, I mean, that reminds me of the the end of the book. Uh, and like the epilogue, or is that things the epilogue? Or the last mm-hmm. chapter? Mm-hmm. You, you start with this metaphor of a phoenix. Yes. Uh, I absolutely love that metaphor. But something you said in the book, which I didn't know, um, was that with the whole metaphor of the phoenix and the fire rising from the ashes, it's the phoenix that actually starts the fire. Yeah. Right. So the phoenix chooses to burn the whole thing down mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. start over, you know, and and comes up from the ashes and uh, you know anew. And it's like, oh my gosh, that is that's incredible. Um, and it's the perfect metaphor for uh, the transformation journey because you. Because you have to choose to burn the whole thing down. You have to, like, my people who listen to my story on this show um, and know my story. You have to choose at some point to go into the valley. You have to just say, right, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go to those places, and I don't know how it'll end up, but I know I need to go there. Uh, and I mean, how do you? How do you think people who want to embark on this journey, maybe people at the beginning of the journey, can have that, can find that that courage to begin? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I I really appreciate that you pointed out this passage. It's one of my favorite ones too. So I'll read a little section that answers most of your question. So. Did you know that the mythological phoenix the bird who rises reborn from its own ashes actually starts the fire as well. The Phoenix isn't a victim. It chooses the flames of transformation. It destroys its own comfort zone. It sets both its nest and its old self ablaze. And then I talk about, you know, have you ever done that? Have you ever had that experience? And if so, then you know that it's very, very uncomfortable. It's, it's painful. But the, the last part that I'll read is, The phoenix only chooses the pain of the fire when the pain of staying the same is greater. 
So if people are in that mode of like, okay, I want to transform, I want to change, but I feel stuck or I feel scared or I feel whatever it is, this sounds counterintuitive, but part of what will help you is actually allowing yourself to feel the pain of staying the same. So that might be do nothing for 15 minutes and allow the truth of your life to rise to the surface, like you said. That might just be, I'm going to have fewer distractions and I'm going to do fewer things and have less noise in my life so that I can actually pay attention to what's going on. So for me, at least, the, the times where I have been able to make change are the times where I'm actually paying attention to, oh, it kind of hurts to stay the same. <laughs> this, this isn't actually working for me at all. The danger is when you numb yourself to the pain of staying the same and then you just stay where you are for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. That's why we talked about that earlier with certainty that you, know, you numb the pain of you numb the pain of things staying the same. And that's yeah, that's um that's awful. <laughs> it doesn't feel awful when you're in it, but it it feels like it's safe and and almost happy you feel you know but it's not it's you're not growing and you're not alive there's a part of you that's dying Mm. and the pain is almost controlling you in this passive aggressive kind of way almost and you don't even realize it um so yeah absolutely that's that's, i love that i love that when the pain is too great that you yeah because that that's pretty much my story my pain got too great that i couldn't i couldn't ignore it anymore Mm. that I had to get myself free of it Uh, and here I am (laughs) yes yes um was there a moment for you where you really had that awareness of I've got to make a change it's just it's too painful the way it is yeah 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 I I think I had a and people who listen to the show again I told my story on the show recently but there was this moment where I was um, getting prayed for and I got this picture of me at the top of a mountain with uh, uh, and, and looking down into this valley and the valley was dark and cloudy and there, I couldn't see what was in there and I couldn't even see the way through. But I knew I had to go there. I knew. It was, it was like, you know, you know, it was like almost like a voice telling me, you know, this is going to be painful. Mm-hmm. It's going to be difficult. You don't know how it's going to work out, but you have to go there. And I knew, and I there was technically there was a choice, but mm-hmm. I knew in my body that, that, that there wasn't really a choice. I had to go there. Uh, yeah, and and I did, and I don't regret it. Yeah, that is the thing, isn't it? That whenever you talk to people and hear those powerful stories like yours, where they have this moment of awareness. You're right. You do have a choice. You still have your free will, but it's also so clear that life is in this direction. (laughs) This way is just staying stagnant and slowly dying and life is over here. So it's almost like, well, of course, you've got to go this way. This is where the life is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just coming to the the, the end, what's your biggest... What's your biggest hope for the book? And what do you hope people will will take from the book? And yeah, what's your biggest kind of dream for the book? Yeah. Well, 
In the book, I share that I've wanted to be an author ever since I was six years old. So just having the book, having a book exist in the world, it's already a huge dream come true. Having people read it and write to me and say this, this meant something to me, this made a difference for me. I mean, that's, that's everything right there. But if I had to say sort of one, one hope that I have for people, it would be a quote from the last chapter, which I won't spoil the ending for people who haven't read it because there's a little bit of a plot twist at the end of I do something that might be sort of unexpected to people. But I talk about the reason I do this unexpected thing is because not because I wanted to be rebellious or I wanted to sort of act out against anything. It was the line is something like, I just wanted to let go of anything that had ever kept me from dancing. And so that's my hope for the book of when you read this, I want it to help you let go of anything that has ever kept you from dancing, from living, from feeling free. Powerful. Powerful. Yeah, and it's worth it's worth waiting for. I'd highly recommend reading. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, James. Um, so um, I think the book's kind of available. Well, the time this goes out, the book will be available everywhere. Yes, it will. Yes, the official launch day is April 20th, 2021. But silver lining of the terrible COVID crisis is that a lot of retailers are shipping out books early. So depending on where you are internationally, the dates are going to be different. But for US readers, at least a lot of people have gotten their books already. And it's just the beginning of April. So just know that the sooner you order it, the sooner it will get to you. There's also digital versions. There will be an audiobook that I will be narrating. So that's also available for pre-order right now. Awesome. That's so great. And where can people find your work? Yes. So you will have a custom link just for your people, but the main website is awishcomeclear.com. And I think your URL is awishcomeclear.com slash James hyphen Prescott. So that will take people directly to the book page with all of the all of the juicy pre-order bonuses. I didn't even mention that. So I purposefully did a crazy pre-order package where I'm giving away a hundred expert interviews in addition to the book. So I wanted it to be the book is my voice and my story, but I also wanted to bring in other people's voices and how they live like they don't owe anyone. And so that's the idea behind when you're waiting for the book to arrive, you can listen to over a hundred interviews of other people who are living this way and who are letting go of the old burdens and expectations. So. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yes. So use that second link with my name in it. Yes. Highly James, James needs to get the credit for this. <laughs> totally. Shameless plug for myself on my own podcast. <laughs> If you can't do it on your own podcast, where can you? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. Um, fantastic. Well, definitely check that out, everybody. I highly recommend it. And um, thanks, Caroline, for coming on the show again. It's it's great to have you. It's been great to have you back. You are so welcome. It's always fun to talk to you. We have these great, deep conversations, and I'm just glad to be a part of it. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And um, thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>